podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So let us start with Manon, who says, is the ability for a left-arm bowler to naturally swing away from a right-hander special? I don't think the ability is special. I think the the, the main thing is that the, whatever it seems to be, the natural kind of swing uh, for most bowlers, at least traditionally, has always been to swing the ball um, uh, away from a right-hander if you're right-hander and, uh, sorry, if you're right-armer and into a right-hander if you're a left-armer. And that is, you know, the most important thing. If you think if you're a left-arm bowler, that gives you bold and LBW against right-handers, you still have the natural angle going across and then against left-handers, you swing away. If you go through the history of cricket, it is very, very rare to find a left-arm bowler who can swing the ball the other way. You've got someone like Jack Shantry who played county cricket, but he had a sort of a busted inverted bowling action that kind of did it for him. Um, uh, who have we seen uh, recently? The um, oh, I've completely forgotten his name. Uh, is Ashdeep. Ashdeep uh, is another one who who we've seen in recent times. Was a Macram is probably uh, the king, and there's a reason why Was a Macram is one of the greatest left-arm bowlers of all time because basically left-arm bowlers on overall skills are nowhere near as talented as right-arm bowlers. And that has a lot to do with the way that they bowl when they're younger. Uh, so, you know, they have such a natural advantage, they don't always develop those other skills. And because they have that natural advantage all the way through their career, they quite often. So if you look at off-spinners compared to left-arm finger spinners, left-arm finger spinners are usually fairly basic, whereas off-spinners usually need, you know, little tricks and other things that they have. The same thing happens with uh, left-arm seam bowlers. So it does seem, for whatever reason, Manan, that, Left arm um, quicks just don't get that skill. Um, it's certainly something that I think is. If I was if I was involved in a, in you know a, a system, so you know from sixteen um, on upwards, it would be something that I would be very. And, and this is this also goes for left arm finger spinners because I think it plays both in, into both of those. It's certainly something that I would be telling people um, as much as possible. You know, there's just there's no reason not to have those extra skills. Um, all right. Tracky says, following uh, Catherine Siverbron's less than stellar performance in the Women's T20 World Cup so far, uh, what what do management think about when deciding to uh, whether to drop their season pro or not? It's a really, really tough one. You've, you know, from outside, it's just like, well, that person's not performing, so you don't pick them. But this is a person who has uh, who has performed over a very very long period of time and has had form fluctuations before. We tend to forget that, of course, when we're when we're on the outside, right? So that's the first thing that all, all players will tell you. This they just like they'll, they'll be fine. And most players, senior players and coaches will trust another senior player uh, rather than a younger player, just because they've seen them do it so many times before. They also know that they, their ceiling may not be as high as a younger player at the moment, but their their, their floor is probably um, a lot higher than, than a younger player where it could go horribly wrong for them. Um, the, the other thing is just it does affect the power balance of, of these things, and it depends on the person. I, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever met Catherine, but uh, you know, I, I don't know that much about her. 
So I take her out of this equation, but there are certain senior players that if you drop are going to cause problems. Sometimes intentionally because they're upset they're being dropped. Other times just unintentionally because they're just going to be moping. When you have someone who's so well-respected moping, splits the change room and all those other, those other sorts of things. Then you also have to say that if that player, and, and I'm trying to think if they have another player who's, who's as like for like, but if that player is struggling, do you have another player who is like for like a replacement? So in World Cups, it's actually really tricky. I was talking to this about the ICC recently of like, why did they just have, is it 15 player squads, I think, or 16, whatever it is. And I was like, you know, T20 teams around the world have like 20 and 25 player squads now. And of course, it's just a traditional thing. It saves the ICC some money, but it causes problems in situations like this. If, you know, if they were expecting Catherine Brunt to be good, they may not have the ideal replacement for her. That may not be the case. I'd have to go through their squad to, to have a look at that more deep. But if you think you might have a replacement wicketkeeper, you have a spare spinner, um, you know, a spare batter, you're starting to run out of, of players who can just come in in a general squad anyway. Um, so there is there is all that sort of stuff. There is the other thing too of you don't want to overreact to a bunch of low form. You know, there's that great period in Greg Chappell's uh, career when he keeps scoring a duck almost every innings. And it's easy to, and, and we see this with, you know, all of modern Indian cricket and probably all of Australian cricket in the, in the 90s and early 2000s was basically overreacting to what was a fairly normal thing. When teams talk about giving a player one more game rather than one fewer, it really comes from the fact that, you know, you don't want to break a player by taking them out altogether. The other side of that, of course, is if dropping wasn't the end of the world, if you could actually say to her, look, uh, especially earlier in the tournament, take your game off, think about it, then we'll bring you back for the next one. We're going to see how we go without you, give some pl other players some uh, um, stuff. Unfortunately, in cricket, we still don't really think about things well i shouldn't say we think about it i certainly know teams have thought about it but people are so wedded to being uh, you know whether they're dropped or not and, and one of the best ones ever was the mitchell johnson one in the 2010 11 ashes sort of at the start of our player rotation era and he was told he was rotated and he basically did a press conference about how he was dropped I know that there was RCB tried to do a thing where they were bringing players in they were you know they were going to have a really flexible 11 and that was their plan. And they thought they communicated it really well to the players. The players thought they were dropped. So I think we need to get on uh, uh, beyond all that sort of stuff. The, the other thing I would say, this doesn't tra track it. This doesn't really matter as much for your question. But in general, especially in T20 franchises, it's really hard to drop someone if they're paid in the top three or four top highest level of, of, of payment. Because a young player, some young players will be like, great, well, I'll, this is my opportunity. But other young players are like, well, wait a minute, you're paying me 20 grand and I'm now doing the role of someone who's doing who's getting paid 500 grand. That's not fair. Um, and, it, and it creates more issues. So th there's a lot of issues when, when you go through those sorts of things. Christopher says, if we had a franchise test league of, say, six teams with no limits on overseas, where would the talent pool come from? Uh, and where would we get a lot of overrepresentation from? Uh, I mean, I think that always oh, pretty obvious, uh, Christopher. I think, you, you know, you'd be looking at the top three or four teams. Um, and I think you probably get an overrepresentation there. Perhaps less so New Zealand, just because the talent pool isn't quite as deep as perhaps the other places, but certainly the big three teams. And uh, Pakistan, of course, especially with fast bowlers. Um, try also batters, and they've got some decent batters outside this, although maybe not as much now, but perhaps not that long ago. So it, the overrepresentation would be from the major sides. I don't think there's any doubt there. Um, but 
I still think you get so much talent from around the world. I don't think it would look um, as lopsided as as it may appear. Satchmo says, how would great batters who played across the line have adapted to DRS to avoid the greater likelihood of LBW? Well, I mean, I understand why you're asking this question. But what I would say is that Steve Smith probably plays across the line as much as anyone ever has in the history of cricket. He has played the majority of his cricket either in the Hawkeye period or in the Hawkeye slash DRS period. So it hasn't really changed him. Uh, I can't, and, and KP certainly played, when did KP finish? 2014, well and truly into the, that period as well. I don't think it changed his batting particularly. Um, so I'm not sure that's the problem. I, I would have thought the, the, the one player that I thought was most noticeable who struggled with it was Shane Watson. And I think that there was certainly tall batters who who played, um, who took that big stride forward and put doubt in umpire's mind, cannot do that anymore. And I think with, with Watson, what we saw was it was just given out almost every time. And he didn't have the fleet of foot um, Second, you know, he he didn't have that sort of hovering front foot that we now talk about in in cricket, um, wh- which is you know where you don't quite commit forward or back until you have a bit more of an idea of it. He's more more of an old fashioned. What old tall batters used to do is you know get that was what they were taught to do: get that big front step in um, and get on top of the bounce and drive everything on the up. And he certainly did that, you know. Um, so it just it didn't translate. The thing about that playing across the line, I think the one area that I do think it's quite important, uh, and you see Ben Stokes, uh, Steve Smith, someone else I'm missing there, or Kevin Peterson, uh, you see all these players who play across the line struggling specifically when the ball is spinning away from them. That I'm not sure has been fully answered yet. Uh, I want to see more and more details on that. But in every other way, I think people playing across the line seems to have gone okay. But under the, this new wobble ball era, I have seen a lot of players trying to hit the ball more towards mid-on and less towards square leg. And that is um, that is sort of what y- you're talking about. I wouldn't say that's players playing across the line, but I think generally if, if the ball, and this is not so much across the line, but if the ball was angled in to off and middle stump, and if you're good on your pads, you would flick it. That particular shot, it's got a lot of batters out in the last six years. And I think now what you're seeing is they're playing a little bit straighter. So there is a small adjustment already being made. I'm not sure that's quite DRS, although that is part of that the whole DRS um, system. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoab and Imran's incredible manes, not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair, and so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic mustache, we can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Uh, Will says, how would you fit Bairstow back in the England batting lineup? Um, would you rather drop folks and have Bairstow keep or have someone else over with Duckett? I think with everything Bairstow's done, it's kind of, I think my first conversation would be with Bairstow. And we're like, look, we, 
clearly think Harry is a long-term prospect here. We're having some issues fitting you in. You know, what do you what what is your ideal role? What is your second role? And what is your third role? I know Harmy has talked a lot about Bearstow opening, which is possible. You, you mentioned it there. I, I I don't I thought actually Ducker played really well in that first test. I still don't think over the long term he can be an opener uh, in all conditions. The the folks thing I don't like just because I like the folks is the one sensible batter they've got left and is at least going to chip it around on bad days. Um, and also I think folks is a wonderful wicket keeper. So it's kind of against my DNA to go with the batter wicket keeper over the keeper batter. But that would probably be my my next option. I think would be literally just to say best. Though, are you interested? These are the roles. Do you want to open? We didn't think so. Do you want the gloves back? And then see what happens. I don't think there's a better option than that other than Ollie Pope um, being dropped. And, you know, I'm not the maddest Ollie Pope fan, but I think that would be pretty unfair on Ollie Pope. Um, but but also think in the next two years, there's going to be pr- plenty of opportunities for Pope anyway. People are going to get injured and, and everything else. And I wonder if in the next two years, if Bairstow has worked out everything he needs to work out about his batting, do you not want to milk those two years for all their worth? We know that when Bairstow is confident and it's working for him, there's almost no better batter in the world. We know that his ceiling is incredibly high. We just also happen to know this floor is really low. So if you think you're going to have two years of high-performing Bairstow or even 18 months of high-performing Bairstow, I'm not sure there's any player in that side that can have the same kind of impact as him. So it's, it's a really interesting one from that perspective. Gary says, as I was watching the rain come down in the Island-India game, I wondered... Uh, is there a DLS adjustment for women's ODIs and T20s? Does it use separate women's database or is the cal- calculation gender neutral? Calculation is gender neutral. As far as I, I, there's no different women's one. Um, there is, of course, different versions for ODIs and T20s. There's a few tweaks that you have to make for T20. I think we're in, and, and I don't, I'm, you know, I don't want to slag off uh, DLS or anything, but I think we're in an era where we know that it's no longer the best system. I wonder how much longer it will last. There was a couple of other systems that were quite similar, but maybe slightly advanced, but maybe not worth moving to. I think what we will look at now is that we have a lot more information on exactly... Uh, we now know that DLS doesn't really tell the story of what is going to happen in a game as accurately as we could, um, looking at all the different data that we've had over... You know, When they made DLS, we actually didn't have that much ODI information available to us. We certainly didn't have any T20 information. We now have a lot more, and I think there will be better systems going forward. I don't think that we necessarily need a different one for women's or men's, though, because it's, a, it's about the scores, right? So, you know, if a, if a woman's team has made 180 um, on that pitch, then, you know, that I would have thought the algorithm, you know, naturally works that out. I don't think it needs to know that someone did it with with or without a penis. I could be wrong, but I don't, I can't think of any um, parts of that. But there might be, and that's what I'm talking about when we look at this data. Women's cricket is so, we're going to try and do a video up for Friday. Cheyenne's working on it at the moment. But women's cricket is so, different to men's in t20 cricket the the arc of the game is is the shape of the game i should say is so different when you look at it and i think from that perspective it's worth having these conversations but i'm not sure this one particularly would change anything cam says uh trying to forget about the current media argy on pitches having worked for kevin mitchell jr at the gabba many years ago i'm sure if an australian captain or coach had told him what pitch to prepare he would have told them to fuck off and prepare how he saw best i get the pressure 
that that is or was the same at other Australian curators. What's that experience around the world? Uh, there have been Indian curators who have created pitches in spite of captains because of that. There's absolutely no doubt about that. That's one thing. I remember you might have heard me talking about it for ages when we were trying to get to the bottom of why the global batting averages had dropped. You know, I was asking around. I'd heard a whisper that all the chairman, uh, sorry, all the CEOs had got together and decided to make the pitches better. And I'd gone with that for a while. And then when I really started to investigate that, you know, piece by piece, one of the things that someone from the ICC said to me was, like, the groundsmen don't even listen to, like, their local board or, any, like, they're not going to listen to a chairman, um, you know, very often. And so I, I think that from that perspective, you do get that. You also then get, and I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, the captain might want one thing. Captain and coach might want one thing. The cricket board, uh, the national cricket board might want something else. And the local cricket board might want something else. So when we're talking about this, this is why it can be a little bit silly at times. And not to mention that you do get people like Kevin Mitchell Jr. who are older and, you know, and have a reputation or, or are so good at what they do that they will tell people to fuck off. But then you also get other uh, uh, curators who are trying to do the best they can, but the conditions are not even allowing them to do what um, the board or the team wants them to do. Um, and then you get the other kind where you get some curators who are kind of newer to the job and are still learning it, and they're just trying to make the best pitch they can, and they're going to um, not listen to the outside noise. I mean, I think if you look at if you look at the Karachi situation, was it Lahore? The bad pitch of Pakistan. Why have I forgotten which one it was? Anyway. Uh, you know, the one that was uh, should have been fined twice, it was only fined once in the end. It feels like that, it feels like one of the things that people at the PCB were saying is that these people had made a lot of four day pitches and a five day pitch is slightly different. And Cam, you probably, as someone who's worked with these people, would probably understand that it is a little bit different. Putting on that extra 20% sometimes is where it all goes wrong. And you only do that once or twice a year, whereas you do the four day ones much more regularly. And that's where some of the mistakes come in and they can go in both directions, right? Sometimes they end up with the flattest pitch of all time. Sometimes they end up not helping the home team. Um, and, and, but more often than not, regardless that when we talk about pitches, pitches fa favor local teams, even if they are completely undocted, right? And the reason they favor local teams is because local teams have spent their whole careers playing on them, Right. They know how to play on their local pitches. That's why they're playing international cricket. They're already better on their local pitches than anyone else is going to be on them, which is another argument why doctoring is kind of a little bit pointless um, at, at a certain point. And you could argue, you know, the most doctored pitches of recent times, and they did it completely openly, was South Africa. They said, uh, you know, Faf Plessy looked around his change room and he's like, I'm not sure if we have the best batters in the world, but I wonder if we don't have the toughest batters in the world and that our batters are willing to take more hits on the body than anyone else, and that our bowlers are so good that no one else is going to want to get in, in the, inside the line and take them. And so there was a generation, you know, well, whenever it was, three or four years ago, where South Africa would put pitches, which were intentionally difficult to bat on, against seam bowling, um, and, and that was a tactical um, issue. But within that, I can't remember, it might have been the um, – Port Elizabeth pitch, what was it called now? Quirba, the Quirba pitch. Is it Quirba? I think it's Quirba um, pitch, where it, it was still too slow to be able to do that. They, I think they tried to spice that one up and it didn't work. And then other pitches where the groundsman just went, no, this is going to be the wicket. 
and you're still going to be in the advantage here, but this is going to be the wicket. So yeah, I think there's a, I think there's, um, I had this discussion with a, f- a former player once who got really angry with me because I was basically I wrote an article for Crook Info saying that a lot of what we say about pitches is nonsense anyway, and I I, I don't mean that from a so Cam you've done some work on on uh, working for pitches I've done a little bit of work when I was younger but not enough to know or remember any of it, but I obviously know some people who've done it quite often. It's guesswork. And even the groundsman will sometimes tell you something that doesn't end up being true. These are living, breathing things. The weather, the climate, the sun, all these different things play a part in them. And we don't always know what it's going to be. We have seen test matches where for like a session, you get inconsistent bounce. And everyone's like, well, hey. And then the next session, nothing happens. <laughs> and there's no inconsistent bounce again. It's just like the morning of day two, there was, you know, morning of day two. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Um, there's inconsistent bounce, and then there isn't any other time. There's so much that goes into them. And uh, there are certainly groundsmen who um, don't listen to people, but there are also groundsmen who are split between three different camps at times. It's a really, really interesting one. Patrick says, how has England's bowling attack become so good in the fourth innings? Uh, well, I think some of that might be just reverting to mean because uh, Jimmy Anderson didn't take any wickets uh, in the four things for about 18 months. So I think that's a big part of it. But I would say that the main part of it is that they have in Ollie Robinson, Stuart Broad, um, Jimmy Anderson, specifically with their seamers, three bowlers who bolt the stumps a lot and hit the stumps a lot. O- Ollie Robinson's ability to hit the stumps from his height is Probably something we don't talk about enough. And even Stuart Broads, if we're being honest, they bowl really, really full now and they hit those stumps a lot. And in the fourth day, uh, or fourth and fifth, fourth innings, but fourth and fifth days, uh, you're better off aiming at the stumps. Uh, well, I mean, you're almost always better off aiming at the stumps, but that's a whole different conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, on the fourth and fifth day, what you have is um, uh, a situation where I think that particularly helps. But yeah, uh, Anderson maybe was so bad that he's just got back to normal and that's helped. Um, but I c- can't think of any other reasons. I mean, they don't have a world-class spinner. Um, certainly not a spinner who takes over on the four- fourth innings anyway. Um, the only other thing I would put in is that they have fifth bowler. And I think any teams that have fifth bowlers have a huge advantage on the last day because their frontline bowlers are less tired. Sandeep says, should the ICC and cricket boards be taking a stance on the likes of... Um, uh, Scott Kuglin and Sandeep Lamachani. I appreciate that one has been acquitted and the other, other one's case is still in course. Well, that's why they can't. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. If you put a morality cr- clause into international cricket, I think you'll find there'll be a lot of players not playing. Um, I think that is probably up to the individual boards. I think it's more than fair under, uh, you know, <laughs> I think we've seen when the evidence is absolutely overwhelming like let's say in Ben Soakes's case, I know it's slightly different to what you're talking about. You're talking about you know rape and sexual assault and those sorts of things. But we've seen in American sports where when there's overwhelming public evidence, which we had in the case of Ben Stokes, that suspending a player without pay um, and making sure that they get the support they need um, and that the issue is is treated correctly um, without them playing is probably a you know the better option. I think in these cases, it, it, I mean, you could say that with Sandeep. Um, uh, with Scott Kugelheim, once you know, once he was cleared, 
unfortunately that's that's how that's how it works um and i i can't see how the icc could say well you know we're not particularly happy with this unless they they come in with a different way there are so many bad people in cricket i, I hate to burst everyone's bubble but you know there are so many bad people in cricket and um it's a, it would be a very very hard thing to police you know even even things like we've had a couple of cricketers you know when um, I forgot, which is John Mooney um, sent out the tweet saying that he was glad that Margaret Thatcher died. And then we had, I'm trying to think, do we have any cricketers come out when the queen died? I've now forgotten. I think we did. I hope, I hope I've got that right. And say things that, you know, obviously haven't gone down very well. Once you get down to that point of morality, and we're not talking about legal issues here, because if if, if Scott Kugelheim was found guilty of what he did, he would go to jail, um, and then that would be a completely different case. Um, but when we're talking about more morality-based judgments, it's really tough. And I've talked to boards about this before, and you know they certainly... It's not that they're not having these same conversations, but where do you draw the line? And then you know how flexible can, can you be? And if... Let's say Scott Kugeline um, Scott or Ben Stokes went to jail for what they did. Once they've paid their debt to society, do they not have a right to go back to their jobs? There are a lot of people within cricket who will say, no, because they're representing their country. It's not just a job at that point. Um, and because they're representing their country, they've lost that right. I, I think that's a very fair argument. I would come from the other side of things where I would say, this is their job. They only have a 10 to 15 year window. They made a mistake. They paid their debt to society. They should be able to come back and, uh, you know, earn a living now. And they're all always going to earn less money than they did before. Like anyone who's gone to jail, that's a fairly normal thing, right? You, you are limiting, A, you've missed out on a couple of years of wage. Um, B, you may not be remembered as fondly. And C, teams don't like the bad PR, right? So all those things do play a part in, in, in that. The Sandeep one's more interesting because I don't, I feel like that's been going on for a long time. And this is the other problem with, with an athlete. You know, if you're talking about a 12 or 14 year career and you're in a country where it takes 18 months for you to go on trial, even if you're found not guilty, you've lost 18 months. And even if it's completely bogus charges, you might've lost 18 months of your career. It's really, really I, like, I would prefer a player not be playing for their national team while they're on trial for something, but I can understand why that's a really tricky issue from that point of, as well. Uh, James says, were India's bowlers applying so much pressure as to induce poor shot selection, or did Australia just inexplicably <laughs> shit the bed? Somewhere in between. No, I think, I, I talked about this after the first test. I certainly think there is a arse-on-fire nature to the way that Australia play in India specifically, which they are almost waiting for everything to go against them because they're so sure it is going to go against them. And then we do see sometimes where they just sort of go for it because they almost feel that there's no other option. Um, so I think that plays a part, but you are playing. I thought it was really interesting. If you go back to, was it, it must be in the end of day two when Ashwin was bowling to head and he wasn't bowling particularly well. Didn't think Ashwin bowled brilliantly in that mini session, whatever it was. And Australia were aggressive, but they were taking down balls that were easier to hit. Once the next day, Ashwin just went back to being Ashwin again. And we've seen this with Nathan Lyon and everyone else. Um, then if you're playing the same level of risky shots, you're now, you're upping the, the degree of difficulty by a factor of like four or five. And I do think that there was maybe an element of it had worked the night before for Head, who is the player almost everyone thought would work the least for. 
perhaps we should go with it again. Um, but I, I think I, I, I would hate to ever downgrade the quality of bowling because they're just, I think they're incredible. Another one from James. Is public perception important to effective international captaincy? If so, do captains who are less demonstrative in their leadership, who are more introverted, have to go to special effort to do more PR in order to manage that public perception? Yeah, this, this is great. So it's re- West Indies is the best uh, recent case of this. And I think I might have done an episode with the um, West Indies and 99.94 guys about this before, or maybe they're on my show or, or whatever. But Darren Sammy and Jason Holder are two of the best politicians I've ever met in cricket. Just absolutely smooth politicians. You know, remember everyone's name, make you feel really warm when you see them, um, you know, smiling, great for the cameras. You know, that was it Jason Holder who went, I think they were trying to buy tickets one year and everything went bad and he went out into the, you know, into the queues to see the fans or whatever it was. Just really good things. Kyron Pollard is not a politician. He's got a lot of great skills, but he's a brutally honest man. If you ask him a question, he 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 comes across grumpy sometimes because he can be grumpy sometimes. He doesn't particularly like dealing with the media. I mean, I think that's pretty clear from his public persona. But that's you know, as someone who had to work with him and had to work with the media at the same time, I once had to go into a change room and drag him out to do a press conference after we'd lost one of the worst games of T Twenty cricket ever played. He does not like to do deal with the media. Um, I think that's very fair, and. I really do think the public perception of those three captains was partly shaped by those things. You know, Darren Sammy did everything he could to keep the West Indian public on side. Uh, Jason Holder certainly followed that to the letter of the law, and Kyron Pollard came in and just captained. And I think that the fans turned on Kyron Pollard quicker when you perhaps look at some of the records of the other two guys as well. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's a big part of it. It's a really tough part of it so i think if you look back at the history of test cricket james you'll see that captains were more statesmen you know they had to be able to give that great speech they had to be seen as you know uh in control um you know tactically aware was important but we didn't dissect the game in the same way in those days so if you look good in a blazer and you spoke with a deep voice that went a long way so the modern version of that is you know, how you interact with fans, how you interact with social media, how you come across on camera, um, how you do your press conferences at the end of the day. All these different things now play a part. It's a, uh, I always thought captaining was hard, even at club c- cricket level. I always thought it was hard. I love the tactical side of it, but I hated kind of, and a little bit of the man management, but kind of hated everything else about it. <laughs> when I got into senior cricket, I just, just like, I just don't want to do it anymore. It's too hard. When I got into professional, especially franchise cricket, I was like, why would anyone want to do this? Most captains at franchise level don't get paid any extra. And it's uh, so much more work. Just having to spend time with your analyst is so much extra work. Um, you know, having to stay on top of everything and, and, and everything else, the extra press that you have to do, all of these things, uh, it is so hard. So I, I do think from that perspective that, yeah, that, that extra element of it, the sort of PR side of it, it's a really, really important part now, and it doesn't come naturally to everyone. And you can be an absolutely brilliant captain with a with a mediocre team who's bad at PR, and you'll have a bad reputation without really having deserved it at all. My God, James is all over this. I'll do this one quickly. Um, Asian teams have been importing center coaches for many years, but the reverse doesn't seem to happen, barring the occasional spinballing coach. Would you agree? And if so, why do you think this is? Does senior teams see Asia as a primary source of cricket? knowledge no so i think there's i think there's a basic um reason for this the original coaches uh the original cricket coaching 
um, at a sort of international level comes from Australia. And it very quickly becomes an Australian, New Zealand, South African thing. And if you had a look, the majority of those early coaches come from that thing. Those coaches train other coaches. And I think there's a there's almost like a self-selecting bias at a certain point from that. I do believe in the future you will see more international coaches come from other places. Um, I think it's really interesting that Dav Watmore, who is you know born in Sri Lanka but raised in Australian cricket as much as anything, uh, is is a more in, de- in demand coach, for instance, than a lot of the other Asian coaches on a similar level. But I think we're already starting to break that. We're now seeing, um, you know, Kumar Sangakara, Mahila J. Wardner um, are coming through, and I think there'll be more and more of those coaches. Uh, I have um, we and CPL. Uh, we've certainly seen Asian coaches in the CPL. We have seen in the Big Bash. We had a Sri Lankan coach. So it is starting to happen. Also, I think there is a natural thing of we know cricket and they know spin, you know, sort of inherent bias, uh, racism, whatever you want to call it in, in that. And I think that has certainly paid a part. Uh, you know, it's really interesting to me that, like, if you're, a, don't get me wrong, if you're a seam bowler, if you're a spin bowler from Asia, I know you know a lot, but you also come from a massively privileged background, right? Sometimes I think, would you not be better off to get Paul Harris as your spin bowling coach? Because uh, he had to overcome everything just to bowl it over in test cricket. So I, I do wonder about that. And then the opposite is true, right? Like if you're an Asian seam bowler, you've had to bowl on the flattest pitches on earth. Most seamers can bowl on the pitches that do a lot, right? So I do think there is another error in that from that perspective but i do think a lot of it just goes back to the traditional side of coaches and uh you know australia was so advanced when it came to coaches and uh you know that that whole setup that's not going to stay around anymore and it's not just coaches it also happened in administration and again comes straight out of australia being professional more than anyone else and you know for a long time most of the you know sort of top officials around the icc and i'm not talking about the famous ones but the other one came through um, cricket australia because cricket australia was better run than the other boards again that's not happening anymore you see great media operator uh, operators coming out of bangladesh right you know the former um icc head of media was um a pakistani that wasn't happening even a generation, you know, even, you know, a generation before. And it's because now these other boards are creating great people, you know, um, you know, South Africa and, and, and uh, you know, many other places. So I do think these things will, will clean themselves up naturally. I think within Asia specifically, there is still an idea that occasionally, and I think it's less than people probably make out, but there is an idea of occasionally, you know, we need a white coach to come in and um, clean house or, or, clear things up and you hear people say that sometimes it's a bit cringy when you hear that the other side of it is that quite often white coaches in asia and and you see this in pakistan i don't know if we've seen it in so many other places but certainly in pakistan maybe in sri lanka at times they're seen as independent um and they come in from an independent background because the politics in the west is not quite the same as the politics there um but I remember in the West Indies, they, they talked about this as well. Why do we keep importing in white coaches? Um, you know, Pakistan uh, certainly have a similar thing. They will when they probably, if they appoint Mickey Arthur, it seems to have gone on a bit long now, doesn't it? Um, so I think all those things are play a part. Um, but I think if you look at people like people like Shri coming through who works with Australia, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, people coming through in, in other, uh, you know, um, you know, Prasanna, who worked with the South African team, I think 
those sorts of people we are just really well respected within their cricket communities very and and because of that um you know they're kind of trailblazers in the opposite direction than what you're talking about and eventually it will just be a normal part of the game um the other thing i was thinking about recently is just i i wonder more and more now how important language is in cricket coaching it's such a subtle game and, and there's a great movie called sugar uh which is um uh, which is made by a couple of directors have gone on to much bigger things but what, it was one of their early movies and it's about how young i want to say dominican republic baseballers uh, learn english they don't learn english they learn baseball phrases and i was thinking yeah that's handy but it's really hard to communicate with someone um in that case it's a really interesting question about cricket coaching i think going ahead and it's not just cricket coaching you see it in european basketball all the time you know so many different languages how you coach uh, european football all these different things a bloody bugger says in an ideal scenario how would you organize an exhibition match with a focus on uncovered pitch sticky wicket which ground or oh, which would be the stickiest well you you probably want a ground that has a little bit of tennis bounce tennis ball bounce so you know australia usually was the the stickiest wicket problems um, so you'd probably be going uh, per stadium or MCG. I think they're two of the more tennis ball grounds. Uh, which players? Well, you want tall bowlers for that, don't you? Probably want tall, tall, faster spinners. Do we have anyone? Solomon Ben's sort of gone. Who's our tallest spinner? I suppose Ashwin. Uh, Akshar Patel would be really interesting on that kind of wicket. Um, you certainly want tall bowlers. Batters, I would have thought you would want shorter batters because you kind of want the ball to rise above them, whereas tall batters, it would get in the way of so the ball in on a sticky wicket sort of comes in normally and then rises tennis ball if you've ever played a oh, tennis ball it's a bit like that but faster and more dangerous <laughs> um and would you want a specialist wicket keeper or a batter you definitely if you're bowling a lot of spin on a sticky wicket you probably definitely want a specialist because it should be really tricky if you were if you were keeping back um i don't think it matters as much because the ball kind of fizzles out a little bit more by the time it gets back to a wicket keeper on on a sticky wicket so Sticky wickets traditionally, it's a really interesting thing, and, and I'm not sure we cover it uh, enough as historians, but but essentially the reason they're dangerous is that the wicket gets wet. And when the wicket's wet, if you've ever played on a, on a turf wicket that's wet, kind of the ball skids on a little bit, and it's okay. You might get a little bit of lateral movement at times, but you can kind of play with it. If the sun hits it afterwards and it gets dry, that is when it starts to play up and the balls start to go vertical. Um and South Africa and Australia were probably the two worst of this. England and New Zealand had it, but it would slow down. And West Indies and Asia, I don't remember too many stories about it being as big of an issue in those places. Not to say it isn't, um, but perhaps it just it, it wasn't uh, spoken about as much. So it, it's a really, really interesting form of cricket. If you've ever played, I played on uncovered wickets. They are, I remember going out to bat. I mustn't have been very old. I was probably 16, 17, playing senior cricket, and I was new to turf wicket. I know I couldn't work out how to play a shot. And I ended up playing the most bizarre pull flick shot, which I think hit the back of my bat, went straight up in the air, and I was caught. And my captain came to me and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what was that? And I was like, I didn't know how to play any shots. And over time, I got very used to it because I played, I played a lot on uncovered wickets. By the end, I really enjoyed them. I played on a couple in England where I've made runs where no one else has um, because it's almost like a completely different mode of batting. So that makes it a little bit tougher to work out what current batters would work it out because it's some people just get it. I remember playing club cricket against this guy. And for whatever reason, I must have played against him three times when we had this, the, this problem come up. 
And he was batting all three occasions. And he batted in a way that just, it was so bizarre. It never, it didn't look like anyone else. And then you would see him on a normal pitch and he would bat normally. So he just worked out a method that worked. It's, it's really interesting anyway. Aditya says, Jadeja averages over 40 with a bat in the past four years um, and under 25 with the ball. Uh, where do you compare this to the all-time great all-rounders runs? Does it compete with Imran's in the 80s? No. No one compares with Imran in the 80s. Um, we're doing a big video series on this soon. I think this actual run is really good. I think if you look at his entire career, there are questions about whether he gets in the top five all-rounders of all time. But his numbers by the end, let, let's say he averages over 40 in his career and he averages anywhere near 25 with the ball. It's going to be really hard to say that he's not in the top five all-rounders all time, but we're going to go very deep into it because I, I think, especially, I think going ahead, there's so many questions. It's, we're, we're trying to do a big project on rating the best test batters of all time, and then eventually we'll probably get to the best test bowlers and then we'll look at limited overs. Once you start to factor in all-rounders, it does get really, really tricky. Usage is one thing. Where they, pardon me, <laughs> where they fit into the order, where they fit into the bowling picking order and the batting picking order, um, all these things are really, really interesting. So it's a, I find it a fascinating um, project to look at and all-rounders are even trickier again. But we, yeah, we have two big videos on Jadeja um, coming up and it's kind of this and Chucky Balasan's another one as well. Like, you know, where do you fit these modern all-rounders into the all-time pantheon? I would have said that, uh, I think I was talking to someone, that, but I don't know if this was on a podcast the other day, but Jadeja's figures are looking very much like Keith Miller's figures. And Keith Miller's probably just below the top level of all-rounders that we think of now. But when you go back and you have a look at it and you'd be like, well, he batted number four for Australia and he took the new ball and averaged low 20s with the ball. Um, and I think Jadeja's on that kind of path. And it's a really, really interesting question. Then how do you factor who's better as a batting all-rounder or as a bowling all-rounder. And, and you can make then, you know, things like Richard Hadley and, and Shane Warne, are, are, are they bowling all-rounders? All these things are, are absolutely fascinating. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Uh, Adrian, thank you for your super chat. As an England fan, I just want to say I really appreciate your unbiased nuance and bring it up. Oh, I thought this was a question. Well, Adrian, thank you very much. Yeah, I think I think there's uh, there's probably a small audience of TalkSport and there used to be a small audience of, of Crick Info that kind of, of England fans, I should say, on those two things that would go on about, you know, me being an Australian and writing about their team so much. I think that's kind of gone down. I've been here so long. You know, I've now lived in England for what? 35% of my life, 40%, no, yeah, 
How old am I? I'm very old. When did I move over? <laughs> I, can't, I can't even remember when I moved over. Look, I, I mean, for me, I'm writing about cricket teams. I like to write about the cricket culture side of things too. So, you know, the way that England fits into that, you know, from the empire side of things, but also the, you know, that whole era of England cricket, that the, the school issues, the private school issues, um, you know, uh, that the black players, um, you know, leaving the game, uh, Asian players um, not getting as, as much opportunity, all that sort of stuff. But I like, I kind of look at all that as an outsider. Even Australian cricket, I probably look at as more of an outsider than anywhere else. I just kind of know some of the more insidey things more naturally. So for me, it's about cricket team. So I don't really go, I'm going to have to try and be unbiased here. I'm just like, I'm writing about this team. I'm writing about this player. Let's have a look at how they fit in. And cricket is such a weird one, Adrian, of course, because everyone else is so obsessed with nationality in our sport and rightfully i mean it's i i you can't underestimate it you know go and listen to some of the double century podcast seasons i've done talking about nation building through cricket teams here you know it's and it's always been the case it's just such a incredible part of the way that so many of these teams have have grown and so i get that side of it but for me it's just like oh this team used to do this and now they do this or this team was doing this for a very long time and now they do this or this team breeds their cricketers in this way um and they're not getting the most out of them that's just how i think and and so um you know it's uh it's uh it's a natural thing for me i suppose is the best way of putting it. um rather than a conscious thing whereas i think i've worked with other people where they have to be trained into it i think it's one thing of working at crick info just because the audience is so diverse you're not working for one audience it kind of just gets pushed into you a little bit right um where you just have to be a bit more like that um but i i would have thought that there are natural crick info people and there are people who are not natural crick info people and by that i mean there are people who they know a lot about cricket but they are probably more fans of their team and then they end up at crick info and it changes them a little bit whereas i'm probably more of a natural crick info person where that's probably why they made me the global writer right like i remember sambit once saying we didn't have it we were doing some video we didn't have an Indian person on and Sambit making a joke that I represented Indian people on that, which probably annoyed everyone who heard it at the time and probably everyone who hears it now. But the point was that, you know, I was an expert in all these different cricket cultures um, at times uh, because I had to be. Sometimes you get thrown into like six months about where you have to write about Pakistan a lot and, you know, you just end up being, that ends up being your your thing. Um and so, uh, yeah, but thank you very much, Adrian. Remember, if you want your questions guaranteed, Super Chats is the way to go if you're on YouTube. Sandeep says, saw your video on leg spin and women's cricket. How come Poonam Yadav uh, could not find a bidder in the WPL? Uh, and even Vader and Diol aren't regular in the Indian team. I just, I, th I think the last two just haven't bowled very well, would be my guess. Poonam Yadav, I, I didn't have a look if there were, I, I was more looking for the players that bowled the most because I could see, I wanted to use the video because I really wanted to illustrate the sort of different kinds of, women's leg spinners that were out there and she just i i knew that her and alana king were the two that just stood out to me of being a little bit different to everyone else and and i suppose actually sarah glenn as well um and then when i did more research you sort of start to work out that you know there's a couple of different kinds of, of leg spinners so i used her from that perspective but i do wonder if she is a little as women get better at playing spin and they haven't been very good at playing spin uh, as they get better at playing spin um, and better at manipulating the ball around um, and, you know, scoring at two runs a ball uh, the way that the, the men do against spin when they're not hitting boundaries. Um, I wonder if at that point uh, someone bowling that slow can be milked a little bit more. 
And I don't have the speeds on her, so I'm kind of, you know, making that up a little bit. But if you look at the video, the flight she gets on that ball, that is, that reminds me of going back to Melbourne when I was a kid. Every 14-year-old leg spin prodigy would come in. I probably did this as well. You know, you, you end up in like first or seconds in your cricket team and you just bowl these big loopy things. And they are hard to hit. But you do get used to it after a while. And I, my, I always thought that if someone was attacking me when I was bowling like that, I always felt like I was in the game. The minute I played someone who understood that the better way was to milk me, they would score at eight or nine runs and over without me um, threatening them at all. And I wonder if Punam's just moved into that stage in her career. But I do find it interesting that, you know, India has moved on um, from a frontline leg spinner that they can – well, they – moved on the wrong way, that they don't believe in any of their frontline leg spinners at the moment, uh, as you can see in that video, just because of how good leg spin has been. Uh, Babarov says, finish your video about KL Rahul, so that's um, about him and his test um, form. No, it's not his test career, I should say. I'm trying to think of what it was about. And it seems like you're also not sure what to do with him. But shouldn't mental state matter apart from stats only? Well, it's not just about stats, is it? Because I was, I mean, I went well beyond the stats with that. We were looking at where he played and where he didn't. I don't know his mental state. <laughs> I remember talking to someone once um, who was going through a very rough time in international cricket. And I was saying, you know, how are you doing? And he was like, yeah, I'm fine. And I was like, yeah. But... He's like, no, 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 it's great. You know, uh, feeling good. I just haven't been able to make any runs. I'll work it out. It'll come back and it'll work for me. We don't know their mental state is the best thing. And what generally happens is the reason I don't talk about mental state very often is A, I've not been in a room with Kale Roll to evaluate his mental state. B, if I was in that room, it would still be pseudoscience nonsense. What When I'm looking at that, I hear someone say, oh, he averages 34, so he should never play again. And I want to look into if that is the best way of looking at it. Why does he average 34? Uh, what is the what is the issue here um, that is keeping him back? Is there something that could easily be rectified? Is it just a a, a case of he you know um, he gets uh, he, you know he plays on a couple of wickets and makes some runs uh, against the spinners and then his average looks his overall average looks fine again and everyone forgets about it? Um, what is he actually good at? What is he not good at? The whole mental state thing it's pseudoscience sports babble, right? One of my favorite stories ever was the Nathan Horrocks one when Nathan Horrocks didn't get picked for the 2009 Ashes test. And they went out and they showed him the wicket beforehand and it was the oval and everyone knew it was going to spin. They went, it's going to spin tomorrow. You up for it? And he was like, yeah, if you pick me, I'll play and I'll bowl as good as I can. They went, nah, but are you up for it? Well, yeah. Like if you pick me in the team, I'll bowl my spin. It'll go. Okay. I'm all right. And I can't remember who it was, whether it was someone who knew Nathan Horowitz or whether it was a podcast I heard him talk about it. But someone was was explaining that to me of, that's who Nathan Horowitz was. He wasn't the sort of guy like Nathan Lyon who's like, mate, you pick me and I'm going to rip these guys out, right? Which means nothing anyway. <laughs> They're just different kinds of personalities. And I'm actually might have been a coach who was telling me the story about this. And, he, and what they were trying to say is that, like, you know, we – we look at dip for different things in personalities anyway. And introverted people usually get overlooked, whereas extroverted people get seen as tough and opinionated and all this sort of stuff when actually they're just louder <laughs> and they say things more often. So I, I use that to say that this whole mental state thing, I think it is 
you you can't really tell what the other person is. There are sometimes when a person is broken and they will come and tell you they're broken or when everything is not working and their frustrations are just spilling out. As far as I'm aware, that has not been the case with K.R. Raul. That now maybe I'm not there. I'm not watching him in the nets, but Barat is not talking about that. And quite often it's really easy to see. I did a podcast with Mitchell Johnson where we were talking about I was watching him in the nets and you could tell his mind just wasn't right from the things he was focusing on the net. And part of that was his ADHD, which he didn't even know he had at the time, right? But it would be very easy at that stage to drop him and say he should never play again. The story I had from him in the nets was at Adelaide where he looked lost. The next test match, he won a test on his own for, for Australia against England, right? That's why this whole mental state is, it's not for me. Success Fergus says, can you please tell me why the ball has to impact in line of the stumps for a wicket to be LBW? I've talked about this a lot, I think, recently. Success failure. The, the main reason is, is think about where the umpires stand. It is really hard to tell if an LBW, if it's coming from another angle. Um, there would be more, so many more mistakes. And I can tell you this for a fact, because I would say that the LBWs that umpires used to make the biggest errors on before DRS was um, when a player wasn't playing a shot. And those are the ones when the ball can hit you outside the line. Now, if you're Shane Warne and you're bowling to a left-hander and you're landing the ball in the footmarks and you're ragging the ball back towards the stumps, how is the umpire who is standing straight on, the best? The person who has the best angle of that is cover, maybe mid-off, right? And so from that perspective, it would make umpiring so much harder. And I don't think, I don't understand what anyone thinks it would add to the game. I don't think it would add to the game. Um, if anything, we want to, I would say, you want to encourage people to bowl at the stumps more because I think bowling at the stumps more brings in far more um, shot selection. You have the, When you're bowling at off stump and middle stump, you can hit the ball anywhere, whereas I'm not quite sure that's the same if the ball's pitching miles outside and, and, and ragging back in or, you know, and all those other things. Um, the other thing that I would add to all this is that when we talk about the LBW, it has already been refined a lot. And I'm not saying it couldn't, there aren't times we might not want to continue to refine it over the years. But I think some people think it, it's always been like this. It hasn't. It's changed quite a lot. We got to this level partly because it is the most sensible option for when, it, when it comes to, you know, giving decisions. And we've had people, I think the LBW law has probably been exploited by batters the most of any law. And so now it's almost unexploitable and it's also fairly unexploitable by bowlers. Um, and unless you are facing a left arm finger spinner around uh, over the wicket or a left arm bowler who's bowling back of a length over the wicket, I would say it's fairly fair to batters and bowlers. I'm not sure why we would want to change it. Rob says, what is the ideal balance to play a team in India? Do you think two spinners, two seamers, and some part-time bowlers will be enough? Well, part-time bowlers don't really exist much anymore, Rob. Um, teams don't really like using them. They don't think it keeps the pressure on. Um, they don't think it's a positive for their side. So, you know, the old Paul Collingwood, you know, Ronatunga, Ricky Ponting overs don't really exist much anymore. And and it's just because they don't think there's any re There's a reason why a lot of those bowlers end up with bowling averages of like 55, 60, 70, right? Um, so I think the ideal team is five players and uh, five bowlers. And what you really want is for the ability then to have either three seamers and two spinners, if you think the pitch is going to be helpful in that way, or three spinners and two seamers, which I think is the more likely one. Um, uh, 
them you really want then probably two different kinds of seamers maybe one seamer who's a, a specialist with a new ball and hopefully another one who can either make something happen later on or is good with reverse swing uh and then you want you know two kinds of spin that spin the ball in either direction and then you, then your third spinner is just either your all-rounder um or you know if one of the other spinners uh, happens to be quite good with the bat like Mo and Ali or, or Ashwin or Jadeja, then uh, you just pick your third best spinner as your third best spinner, I think, in that case. Oh, one thing I would say is the interesting thing with that is that I would have said five bowlers are really important in India because, traditionally I would have said this, because the test matches go so long that you need the extra bowler. These days the pe- test matches are over so short then it's probably two and two. Uh, and I don't mind the three and one, uh, three spinners and one, one seamer. I actually think in conditions that favor spinning, sometimes we don't have enough spinners in the team. I think that's a really consistent one. But bowling spin over a, a day is a arduous thing. And even if you're even if you're someone like Ashwin or Jadeja who feel like they can bowl forever, their hands and their wrists and their fingers are going to not be as fresh towards the end of the day. I think you do want another option. Nikon says, thoughts on the hard-nosed criticism of the Australian team from the likes of Alan Border? This other team's better than them. Do you think if Australia was being harder, they would be in a better position? It's just pure nonsense. It's I've debunked this so many times. Australia is harder and sledge more when they are winning. It's, it's obvious that they would do that. And the idea that they need to toughen up. It's said every time. It's said by every generation about the previous generation, right? Neil Harvey was saying it about the Australians in, in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Yes, uh, our team would still kill them. It's, it's, just, it's just a constant nonsense. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Jimmy says, would Warren be forced to reinvent himself and bowl faster if he's bowling in this era? Yes, I think so. Uh, cool Deep did it. Nathan Lyon has done it. I would think that Warren, if, if Warren was from this era, I think he would naturally bowl faster. If he, let's say he'd already bowled for six or seven years, I think he would do something more like what Cool Deep and Nathan Lyon has done and, and add a little bit of extra speed. I'm not saying that Warren wouldn't be good at 80 miles an hour now, but I just think that spin bowling has changed so much that I think even he would naturally fit into that style. Freddie says, if Joe Root was averaging 60 pre-basketball, why doesn't he bat normally while everyone else strikes at 100? I think... If his form continues to go the way it is, I think you're right that we that that will start to be a conversation. I wouldn't worry about it too much at the moment. Um, I would let I, the team's winning. Joe Root's talking about how much fun he's having. I would let him continue to be him um, and see how it goes. But I think you make a very very good point there, Freddie. I I think Basball makes a lot more sense for the batters who can't bat. Like for Zach, you know, for someone like Zach Crawley, even for someone like Bearstone Stokes, who average in the 30s, it makes a lot of sense for them to go with that other style. I think if you're already really good and you can score at a strike rate of 55 to 60, maybe, maybe occasionally you say to Root, look, when you're in, can you up it? But I, don't, I just don't see any reason for him to up it early on or play any different way than he does. He, I mean, I must think Basball is, should be the exact. Very similar to the way he bats in one day is between overs 10 and 40. And I don't think he's reverse scooping that much in those periods. So I'm not sure what the idea is um, from him to play. I get the idea, sorry. I'm not sure what the benefit is when he is already so good when the ball is outside of stump. So yeah, I, I find that a little bit less. In, I, I find that I, I want to give him more time doing it before I make the decision, but I certainly understand why you've asked that question, Freddie. Matty says, who is the highest ceiling, Brooke or Gill? 
I think Gil, but there, I don't think there's a lot in it. Who was it? It was Steve Smith picked Brooke, didn't he, the other day? I made a very early call that Virat would be the best of the big four, which as it all, all, all forms better, he probably has been, but probably not in, in, in the, not um, as much in test cricket as I thought he would be. I'm not sure I have a strong enough feeling on Brooke or Gill right at the moment. I want to see both of them play a little bit more test cricket in varied locations. But I feel it's Gill. But I really like Brooke too. So, yeah, I think maybe I would give it to Gill at the moment. I think, I think with Gill, I'm a little bit more biased towards that. And I think this is why I picked Virat as well. So I think I'm still mentally trained to be a little bit more biased towards traditional batting techniques over slightly different ones. And I think Brooke is a little bit more like that sort of modern KP style of batter. And so I, I kind of feel like there's a limit to that. But I could be wrong, of course, because that's why I didn't pick Steve Smith. And massively wrong there <laughs> all right let's just get through another there's some interesting ones here so i'll go through them hardy says what are your thoughts on ash nagar going back home even though he's brought into play and eventually raced by uh, replaced by kunam they picked a guy who hadn't played a lot of red ball cricket who when they got him out there i think they looked at the quality of his bowling and realized that he wasn't going to help them i thought he would have been the second spinner in the first test match obviously todd murphy did take them by surprise. But the fact that they then went for Kuhneman when uh, when he had basically turned up in the, in the ground you know, or in the country, you know, an hour before the test, so to speak, I think just tells you Aston Agar wasn't ready. I think it's a real shame for him. And I think it's that's a that for me, we talk about selection errors all the time. You talk about people like, oh, Indian selectors make a huge mistake with KL Rule. They're not making a huge mistake with KL Rule. They know what he can do. They're hoping he will come good. He's got a, a long record over a long period of time. This is a selection mistake because if you selected a player who was supposed to be your second spinner and isn't even now good enough to stay on the tour, you have made a real, real error. And I think from that perspective, um, someone has made a mistake here. And I don't know exactly um, you know, who it is. Um, and I don't know what the full situation behind it is, as in... Did they just think that he would he would just slide in and everything would be fine? Had they seen him in the nets? How much had they been following him? He hadn't been playing a lot of first class cricket, so I feel this is this is the kind of selection error that I think is a massive error. And weirdly enough, it won't get as much talk as Travis Head missing the first test or KR Rahul um, playing in the second or third test, right? And this is when you have made you have gone into a series with someone who you have not you are not sure is ready to play, and turns out he's not ready to play. Everyone on your squad, unless you're taking them over for experience, say, should be ready to play, right? Unless you're taking someone over and just going, well, taking this guy over just so he can bowl a lot in the nets and understand what it feels like to be in this environment and against Indian batters or whatever it may be. Nikon says, who would be the best seam bowling all-rounder India can get for an Akshar trade? Sam Curran, white? Who's white? And Janssen, who's white? Why am I blanking on white? Why does the name White not even mean anything to me? It's interesting you haven't put Jason Holder or Ben Stokes here because I would have thought they would have been the best options. Uh, I would probably go ooh, for India. I've probably thought that oh, but the Sam Stokes is left-handed. Yeah, I would have thought that he would have been the best option. I'm not sure Curran's bowling would be, and I'm assuming you mean test cricket here. <clears throat> not sure Curran's um, cricket would be ideal i mean the best trade would probably be cameron green right he's unlike other indian bowlers to begin with and can bat in the top six so he strengthens your team even more 
Uh, Yash says, can India get a fast bowler around uh, like our spinners and dominate Cena? Uh, I don't know. I'm not, see, I think this is the wrong way of thinking about it. I actually think that most teams, when they play outside of Asia, have four four person bowling attacks. Because of Jadeja, you already have a five person bowling attack. I think you play Jadeja and Ashwin and every time and then play your three best seamers, knowing that Jadeja and Ashwin are at seven and eight. And India doesn't kind of agree with me here. And I think you do it consistently over a 10 test period. And I think they would dominate at a high level. And they haven't gone with that yet. I will say this, that spinners of recent times have probably been less important in test cricket away from Asia just because the test matches have been so short. The pitches, uh, the pitches don't crumble as much as they used to. I love the idea of India's bowling attack outside of Asia. And they have the best away-from-home bowling uh, record in the world. So I'm not sure you need that. I mean, everyone needs a fast bowling all-rounder. Australia would have just waited 50 years for one. <laughs> It would be great. Look at South Africa floundering after losing Callis. Like every team in the world would want a fast bowling all-rounder. Even most teams would want a spin bowling all-rounder as well. Like it's, these are great players to have. That's why, you know, all-rounders are remembered as legends. They complete, they don't just do what they do on the field. They actually change your ability. A great all-rounder allows you to have seven batters and five bowlers in one eleven, And that is mathematically impossible. And that's what a great all-rounder does. Poonet says, you said baseball was not for batters who can't bat. No, I think it is for batters who can't bat in test cricket. That was the that was why they used it, right? They looked at all their batters in test cricket and they went, well, these guys have tried in test cricket and the best they can average is high 30s, right? And most of them are averaging low 30s or even high 20s. Let's scrap that. Let's see how quickly they can score. Let's see if they can uh, use their white ball skills to put off the opposition. Let's see if they can take um, the advantage away from opposition fast bowlers in an era that is completely dominant for fast bowlers. If you can bat, I'm not sure you need to bat ball, right? But if you can't bat in, in a red ball game, then your ability to change it into a white ball game, especially if you are better at that, is an advantage. If you are changing for, for hundreds of, uh, well, actually, for about 100 years, Essentially, bowling just outside of stump or just at the top of the stumps has been what every fast bowler has had to do. They haven't had to think about too much else in, in test cricket unless the pitch was really, really flat or some reverse swing on, on occasions or the odd bouncer barrage, right? Very simple game plan. If England are coming at you this hard, you have to completely rethink everything. Bowling line and length to them when they're walking down the wicket and turning it into another length changes things. If they're going to take your balls from outside off stump and flip them over the leg side, that changes everything. If they're going to reverse scoop you over third man, that changes everything. So I do think it's a really, really interesting way uh, of, of playing from that perspective. But if you're already really good and you're already dominating test cricket, I'm not sure that you need to play that style. You know, the best if if the best case scenario well, the best explanation would be of Sri Lanka in the mid nineties. You know, Ajay Saria and Kalawathar are absolutely throwing the bats around like you know wild men, right? Aravinda Silva comes in and Arjuna Rondatunga come in. They're not batting that way, right? They allowed for the other people to play that way by basically saying, yeah, worst case scenario, we'll probably still um, save you and we'll still get a decent total and then we'll back our bowlers, right? That is a really, really important thing to remember as well. And I, that's what I was saying before. That's why I kind of why I like folks. I'm not a huge fan of folks as batting, but he's the kind of guy that can get 40s in a lot of different environments and, you know, he can chip the ball around. When if sometimes this is going to fall apart massively for England, that folks is that kind of an important player in that. Anyway, thank you very much to everyone for all your questions and uh, just coming in the chat. 
the more people come in the chat, the better. I know it did overlap with the other game, so I'm sorry if you were trying to follow it live. But remember, we put this up on Twitter, we put this up on YouTube, we put this up on Facebook, or you can just get it old-fashioned way on the podcast up on the Red Inca feed. But thank you very much, and I will be back very, very soon with another episode. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>